Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. What a week we've had. Um, Yeah, I don't know about you, but the highlight of my week has been looking at all the new commissions that we have had pouring in over the last few days. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I don't know if we should remind everyone how we came to have these dropping into our inbox, but we asked for writers to submit their ideas for stories that will form part of our Open Book podcast for the next 10 weeks. And we were just overwhelmed by the number of people that got in touch with us, but also by the brilliant and completely wide range of ideas and suggestions. So we had the very, very difficult job of picking 10. But then we also really wanted to just not choose the writers that we knew or the work that we knew, but also try and get a variety of voices, but also the subject matter being really wide ranging. And then the task of seeing if we could make them fit together. I don't know about you, but that's been really fun this week, reading all the pieces that we had finally settled on and then trying to put them together like a puzzle to see what what might follow and what might inform the piece before or the piece that came after and that was really fun. I'm not sure we've succeeded but you all out there can decide for yourselves but it's been a great joy for us anyway and the great excitement is that we get to start with one of those this week. Yeah, my daughter um, came in to find me surrounded by papers sitting on the floor and said, Mum, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm working. She said, but yeah, but what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm reading stories and she said, so your job reading stories mum and other things but yes today it's definitely reading stories shall we start with the first one yeah so today we're starting with our very first story by Kate Smith a story called All at Sea which Claire and I both loved and are excited to begin with and then we're going to just read one poem at the end by Tom Bakken called Dolphins at Cochin Claire will you get us started sure the boatman cheerily calls everybody buddy and as they step off the stoic wooden Victorian pier his revving boat dips underfoot. Been on the cream cakes buddy? No don't worry you'll find your sea legs. Donna smiles at her daughter Maria and friend Mitchell both wobbling like tall penguins. Donna remembers a small Maria rowing across the harbour with great purpose all heaving limbs and grunts like a mini Viking. Maria calls to Mitchell over the noise of the engine. Don't get excited or anything. Mum's boat is not exactly a super yacht. We're not talking the Kardashians here. Mitchell dazzles a smile at Donna. It's still a boat. It is sunny and we are going sailing. How often do you get to even see all the space and distance? as he points at the horizon. Not yet noon, the sun is still rising in the east and the steady wind holds promise of a good day's sailing. Donna, after all those lonely hours hunched over the laptop in her flat, loves the light, being able to breathe, the freedom. Sorley is moored in the outer harbour, the deepest part where the big boys, the expensive yachts, sit low in the water, waiting to launch sleekly at speed like sharks. As they turn into the outer harbour, Donna sees her old wooden folk boat bobbing about behind the sweetie pink mooring boy, like a circus seal with a ball. Donna won an eBay bid for it, £300 for a very old wooden boat with no engine, 
You've been robbed, buddy. But Donna did not care. Sorley meant adventure, escape and freedom. With sails full of wind and no noisy engine, sailing Sorley felt like flying. Another generous smile from Mitchell. I think it's just perfect. I love it already. Once aboard, there are many jobs to be done before they can set sail and slip off the mooring. These were rituals Donna loved. Rites of passage to make passage across the open sea. As her tanned hands dart about, she says all the ancient names for the boat parts. The telltales, stanchions, lifelines, boom, vang and turnbuckles. The fair leads, forward pulpit, pushpit, halyard, chain plate, upper shroud, lower shroud and batten down the hatches. Thwarts, gudgeons, grommets, clues, sheaves and leeches. Coined to sound clear and distinct in a storm, or to know what has been thrown at you in the Bible black of a moonless night. Unforgettable words called out to men who signed X as their name. Donna struggles to put up the mainsail and attach the corner, the tack, to the gooseneck which sticks out from the mast. Guys, this is heavy with rain. Maybe I could get a... Donna watches Maria and Mitchell pop a Prosecco bottle and pose for photos for Instagram. Oh, this generation, she thinks. If they haven't snapped it, it didn't happen. Next, Donna feeds the foot of the sail through the boom, the heavy pole which swings from side to side across the cabin. Hey, snowflakes, this thing is called the boom because that is the noise it makes when it swings and no one ducks. Donna ties knots to the corners of her sail. Her dad, a ship's captain, taught the young Donna her knots. The right knot will save and the wrong knot will kill. He would seriously inspect her messy knots or an uncoiled rope with a circumspect. I see a snake's holiday, is it? Donna's wistful smile was for the sweet honey of memory and the sea salt sting of the absence. Catch the mainsail sheet, and Donna throws the perfectly coiled rope at Maria. Ugh, I'm not catching that rope. It's all smelly green and wet, calls out Maria, her hands lifting up guiltily high, like a fouling footballer. Uncaught, the rope splashes into the water, and the untethered mainsail cracks loudly like a whip. Mitchell adds, Well, it is wet now. I'll get it, Donna. No problem. And they all laugh as Donna throws the boat hook for him to use. Thanks. Sorry about Princess Margaret. You'll be a great shipmate, though. Okay, first question. How much do you know about sailing? A little bit after a very terrifying experience. When I was a lawyer... We had this uh, weekend away. It was supposed to be team building. And two of about the 10 of us were pretty good sailors and had access to a boat. And so they said, why don't we have a weekend away sailing? This was 
approved as the way to spend the weekend and off we went and we shared cars and organized supplies and got to the boat and took the boat across to sky for the night and the next day began to sail back but the weather changed really rapidly needless to say thereafter a decree came down from high that all team building weekends should be on dry land why is it the team building exercises are always involved danger climbing something and jumping off it or those zip wires or yeah I wonder what it is it's like are you supposed to just think thank god I'm alive and oh yeah I suppose we do get along but um so here's the question have you ever been on a boat since yeah on honeymoon sailing around the Whit Sundays on a liverboard as they call it I have to say though all responsibility for sailing was abdicated to the crew at that point and we were there as sort of willing but amateur helpers who followed the occasional instruction but most of the time was spent snorkeling and exploring the Whitsundays rather than actually being responsible for getting the boat anywhere specific. I did wonder how you got through that whole list of boat parts without stumbling once and it made me think she's done this before maybe she knows she's keeping that quiet. The people I know that do it, though, it seems to be one of these hobbies that once you start it, it becomes completely all consuming. You know, there's a whole raft of qualifications that you can get. And indeed, I think that you have to get in order to be able to take a boat out on your own. It seems to be one of these things that becomes addictive. Yeah. and I, But I guess reading this story, it makes me think I can understand why, you know, because so the bit that I recognize in it is that thing of her saying she spends all day hunched over a desk or whatever, or a laptop in her flat and loves the light and loves being able to breathe. And that part of the story, I thought, yeah, the freedom, I suddenly thought that I understand. It's really why I go to the sea so much to swim. The thing I really like is the light, you know, and only at the seaside, you get that kind of completely open horizon. And no matter how gray the day is, your eyes are filled with a huge amount of light and that kind of breath and fresh air, no matter what kind of a filthy day it is, even in the rain, you're getting a different quality of air, a different quality of light than you would indoors. So that part I recognize. And so I wonder if, and I mean, all you sailors out there can come back to us and tell us how wrong we are. But I wonder if it kind of meets both that part of a kind of instinct, which for me is a kind of a natural world being out in the elements, that light and air, and then also the physicality of collecting something or looking after something, which is something I don't have. That idea of being handy and needing to know all the parts to something and be able to fix, like almost like a joiner, you know, that way of looking after something really huge and physical in the way that people do DIY in their houses, you know, kind of enjoy looking after something physical. So I wonder if it's the two things together, which kind of meet lots of people's needs, but also then because it's the two things together become more consuming. I don't know. It somehow made sense reading this story in a way that it hasn't before. I think as well, there's something about it that you have to be so present. So I don't know about you, but when I'm swimming, I have all sorts of other thoughts that jump into my head because it's such a familiar routine to me. I don't really have to think about the act of swimming. But when you're sailing, you're really, you're looking across at the water to see where the wind's coming because you read that from the waves and then you're making calls and adjustments constantly to the sails and you're bringing other people in the team in to carry out different steps. So very difficult to be anywhere other than precisely in that moment when you're sailing and I think it gives you that release and that escape you feel like you've had a proper break when you come back 
because you've not been able to think about anything else. I recognize that for myself in running. So I love to run. But when I'm running the canal or the streets, I'm not really paying that much attention to what's around me. You know, you can run the canal, particularly in Edinburgh forever without having to worry about cracks or the worst at the moment is just having to dodge other people. But, you know, you really can be thinking about what you're making for tea or what child's project is due. But when I'm in the hills running, it's a different story because I'm running paths that are rocky. And so I really have no choice but to watch where I'm going, like really watch and plan every footstep for fear of being injured because I really prefer to run alone. So I'm usually up in the hills on my own, largely without phone signal. So I'm really conscious that if I, as an adult now, I wouldn't have been in my 20s. So if I turn my ankle over, I'm going to struggle to get back. I'm really aware almost every footstep. So I'm always watching the ground, planning where each footstep is going to go. And I find that experience so different from running the canal or running the city. For that same reason, I have no choice but to be really engaged every second with what I'm doing. And it's so restful in a way. It sounds really crazy to say that a 15 mile run is restful, but it is. It's like the brain gets a rest because you just don't have any choice but to be right there. You know, I wonder if that's that same idea that you just have to focus on something else, which is really nice. Here's a question. What do you make of Donna? How old is she in your head? Well, I think she's the mum of Maria. I think I get that from her describing Maria rowing across the harbour as a little girl. Maria's maybe in her early 20s, so would that put Donna late 50s, early 60s? I think I wasn't doing the maths when I was reading the story. So I was, of course, Donna sounds like she's me, you know, so I'd put her in her late 40s, which makes her a fairly young mum. Yeah, I think for me, Maria is probably just leaving school or... She's got a boyfriend and she's drinking Prosecco. I mean, I wouldn't like to tell tales on our the teenagers I know, so you're absolutely <laughs> right, Claire. Prosecco is quite a fancy drink for any teenager, though, anyway, isn't it? And the thing that I noticed here is the generations of water. There's a confidence that comes with that somehow. Almost everyone I know that sails or is involved in boating has done it as a child. For example, my father didn't swim until later in life because, well, in Iran, almost nobody swims because you have to live near a body of water to do that. He learned later in life. And he is a great swimmer. And, he, and we used to water ski as well, but was never as confident as my mother who grew up around water and was really confident driving a boat in a canoe in the water. It didn't really matter. I remember noticing that as a child and thinking maybe that's something that you pass on to your children. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that anything that you learn as a child is much more comfortable than as an adult. I feel that really strongly about skiing in our family. Mark and I learn in our late 20s, maybe, just because it was never part of our lives before then. But then we had friends who had gone to Aviemore every opportunity from when they were tiny. They were taken up to ski in Cairngorm and they loved skiing. They invited us to go with them and we went. And that same experience, they were so comfortable and we were like two Bambies on ice. But we've skied regularly since then. But our children have skied since they were very little and they are just so much more confident and comfortable comfortable in the, in the environment. I think a lot of it's to do with being comfortable where you are. But I think you're right. I do know some people who learn to sail as adults, but they seem to treat it much more as a military operation, I would say. You know, it's very precise and very organised, whereas the people that sailed as children tend to just sort of jump on the boat and get going. A lot less planning, a lot more intuitive about it. I wonder too if it's a fear. Strangely in Iran, we skied a lot as children and we, we did spend time in the sea, but not on the sea. You know, I wonder if you spend a lot of time in the water as a child, you feel more comfortable about the dangers. Whereas now as an adult, you know, I, I am in the sea a lot, but I'm really aware of how dangerous it is. So 
when I went was last on the island of Ling off the west coast of Scotland where I really like to go and write, although it's been a few years now. You know, my overwhelming experience standing on those rocks is acknowledging that strength of the swell, that it's terrifying. Even though I spent a lot of my sort of childhood in the water, I'm really aware of how scary it is and how dangerous it is. So I wonder if I hadn't spent enough time in the water as a child, that sort of acknowledgement of the danger of it as an adult isn't underpinned with a sort of comfort, if that makes sense, or sort of a recognition that you're able to get turned about or wash machined, as swimmers say, and still write yourself and get yourself out. So I wonder if that translates to sailing, that if you're not, you don't have that underpinning of delight and comfort, then it does become a bit like a military operation. Again, I wonder if the little girl Maria rowing across the harbour in this story has a different sense of danger than she does here, but she certainly doesn't seem worried in this story yet. She doesn't even want to catch the rope because it's smelly green. Maybe she's just being a teenager, I don't know. Maybe we'll adjust our sense of who she is. Shall we read on and find out? Yeah. The sails curve as they fill with wind and the bittersweet excitement and dread thuds Donna's heart. The worst bit of sailing is the casting off, leaving the safe harbour for the unknown. The call of adventure pulls her, but the fear of the sea pushes her back to safety. Glancing at the waves out of the harbour, the wild horses with cresting white manes mean the tide and the wind were going in the opposite directions. Read the sea, whispers her dad's voice in her head. He could look at a perfectly calm sea and sky on a still summer's day, yet purse his lips. There is Carrie in the clouds. Look at how fast those are. Then, an hour or so later, the heavy slate grey fog would rush in with its thundering chaos and change the day. Sailing was not about being able to day trip in good weather. It was to expect and then command the tempest. Donna dismisses her fear and shouts, Okay, crew, slip off the mooring. Mitchell lifts the mooring noose off the boat's cleat and then sorely is free. Maria, with her hand on the tiller and her phone in the other, is taking selfies of a satin captain's hat askew on her curls. The old outboard engine starts to putt-putt and the boat points towards escape, the large stone-walled exit of Granton Harbour. Just at that very moment, a freak swell surges through the harbour. Sorely rises atop the crest of the swell like a cork, but the wave is so high the propeller blade is spinning in the air, a spitfire coming into land. Then Sorely lands in the trough of the wave and the engine gutters in the deep water. Donna glances at Maria, who serenely moves both hands onto the tiller and smiles assuredly at her mum. Perhaps the snowflakes are not so bad after all, thinks Donna. Mitchell sits at the bow of the boat and says, I remember what you said. One hand for me and one hand for the boat. Look, I am holding on. I don't know what it's called, but I'm holding on to it very tightly. Donna's answer, it's the forest day, is lost in the gusting wind as sorely pivots left and points towards a very expensive looking yacht on the next mooring. Donna notices it's called Fenella, and she really hopes the human Fenella is the forgiving type. Turn to starboard, Maria, calls Donna as she crawls up the boat to assist Mitchell. Stick out your feet, Mitch, calls Donna as sorely tries to collide with the millionaire's plaything. Starboard, Maria, shouts Donna again, 
as Mitchell and Donna, lying back on Sorley, kick off Fenella in synchronized kangaroo jumps. Yet the swell carries Sorley on, now drifting slowly backwards past Fenella. Donna looks at the next yacht, Monty's Serenity. Monty won't be very serene in a moment, thinks Donna as she calls out, Maria, move the tiller the other way. Mitch, grab the boat hook and hook onto Fenella's guardrails. Donna and Mitchell then held onto the boat hook, pull with all the mustard strength, but the gentle power of the swell pulls sorely backwards and the pole slides quietly through their grips as they lose the tug of war with the North Sea. When only Donna's right hand is on the pole, she sighs. And this, Mitch, is where the phrase, the bitter end, comes from. It means having to let go of something you really don't want to. As the boat hook splashes in the brine below, Maria calls out, What are you both doing? What are you waiting for? I'll be captain now. Let's get out of the harbor. Maria carefully puts her phone into her back pocket, yanks on the mainsail to catch the wind, and sorely surges forward. The mini Viking is now quite a good sailor, notes Donna. Maria leans over the side of the boat and lifts up a dripping pole. Oh, Look what I have found floating by. Someone's left their boat hook. They all laugh out loudly. Maria, that is our boat hook. Actually, now I see it. I think that might be a window pole. And the unison of their shrieks rings around the harbour walls. As they power through the mouth of the harbour, the North Sea again swells underneath sorely. But this time, Donna, Maria and Mitch work as one around the boat. And with the wind filling the sails, they dart along the forth. As Donna peers for sight of Aberdour Harbour in the distance, she considers what a steady hand on the tiller Maria is. An unflappable captain, just like her granddad. Mitchell, who's now photographing and laughing at Puffin's haphazard crash landings, is already a resolute, entirely reliable, gentle and sure-footed man. Perhaps this young generation are not all at sea, after all. A light from the waves glints and glistens like darting golden fish through the waves. And Donna, with the sun warming her face, once again feels a thrilling pull towards adventure. At the harbour wall, a seal's head pops up, blinking its salty, roomy eyes in the sun like a night watchman, and surveys the old wooden boat tack and turn its way, too carefully and too slowly, across the Firth of Forth. Many people in Scotland believe the seal folk include the souls of old dead mariners who keep lookout over wanderers. I'm not sure I saw that storm coming, did you? No, but I really liked the way Kate wove the story of the family and the granddad and her dad through that second half of the story. You've got a real sense of what you were talking about earlier, about passing down the sailing through families and through generations. And it's funny how you can see like generational traits, as it were, in an activity like this. You know, you quite often might say, oh, she's got her granny's sense of humour or, you know, he's got his grandpa's wry smile. But the idea that you might respond to weather on a sailboat like your grandpa is a kind of a new thing for me. Yeah, it's nice if something like this brings out a character trait that you see family members in or history being passed down. I feel like we get a bit of a sense more of how old Mitchell and Maria are from this bit. He's already an entirely reliable, sure-footed man. Makes me think that he's maybe a bit older than we we originally thought. Oh, I think he's younger. You think? I I think he's definitely out of his teenage years now. He's a sure-footed man. I think it's hard to say that about a teenager. 
you know, our oldest is 18 next week and sometimes he's still a boy and sometimes I look at him and think, gosh, you're really a man now. I think this is one of those moments where push comes to shove and then she sees him as a man, even though before she might have seen him as still a young lad, you know, messing around with his phone and drinking Prosecco. Um, I don't know that he grows on me. You know, all he's done is tried to push a boat away from another boat. And he's back to taking photos, so he's not actually helping. Yeah, photographing the puffins. <laughs> that doesn't seem particularly endearing to me, but she seems to think so. So I like the way Maria develops. Put yourself in her shoes. You know, you've got your oldest or I don't, or your only child or your child anyway. Comes along, who obviously absolutely capable of taking the teller. And she's off messing around, won't touch stuff. And then this boy is busy taking pictures in the middle of a storm. I don't know. Whereas Maria really develops from the, the girl who won't catch the smelly wet thing to the girl who says, I'll be captain now. And I really like that about her. And probably partly too, because she's worried about her mum is at that age where she can take control. What I'm surprised at is that we're not seeing her as a woman. Or maybe that's what Kate expects us to see. So she's pointing it out about him instead. So it seems like a real moment where she becomes the woman in the story. And Donna's looked after which I really like. Yeah, Donna does call her Princess Margaret, though, doesn't she? So it gives me the impression that going to the wet rope isn't entirely unexpected behaviour. And I loved, uh, the reason I wanted to start with the story, we can talk about both of us really wanted to start with the story of all, of all the 11, was because I felt it was really a lovely thing to think about. Because I think in some ways, all of us all over the world are kind of stuck in the middle of a storm just now, trying to push off things so we don't crash. It's a nice metaphor for us to be to think about how we behave in these times and who we might be at the end of it, how it might change us somehow. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a really gentle, engaging story that took me out of where I was sitting reading it almost out into the harbour at Grant and it, I can see the tiller being turned the wrong way and the boat bobbing towards Fenella and I can see the the feet being pushed over the side and to sort of brace against the boat to stop the two bumping into each other and it was just a real little gap in my day as it were when I read this almost took me out to the harbour which was a lovely thing. The other nice thing about the writers who have given us their work is that each of them have chosen the poems that they'd like us to read alongside the writing. So that for us has been a really interesting thing. For me, it's introduced me to new poets that I hadn't read before and new links that I might not necessarily have thought of uh, between the work and the poetry. So I've really enjoyed reading the, the poetry suggestions that have come from our authors as well. Shall we swap over to the poem? Yes, let's do that. Dolphins at Cochin by Tom Buchan. They crashed among the spider nets, spluttering and breathing hoarsely, chasing fish out of the water, calling one another and disappearing. Lime green bellies and smiling mouths, sliced upwards obliquely. Calm, humorous eyes regarded us for a moment and splashed back. Sea marks of dolphins moved among the dozens of jockeying sails, a mile out, in the breaking waves, we could see the flash of more dolphins. On the bridge of our tanker, the grey paint blistered in the heat. Above us, the siren mood to come in at the jetty, the water green and translucent. The smell of crude oil, of ginger drying in the yards, piles of coloured fish, the creak of a wooden capstan, monkeys quarrelling on top of the parked cars. And suddenly there was a dolphin inside our slow bow wave, revolving, amused, 
not realising our incomprehension of his vivid thoughts. Two dolphins came skidding round the point, screeched to a standstill, blowing vapour and circling each other. Then they raced on again, leaping. We watched them, helplessly from our primitive element, able only to think up cold metaphors or to anthropomorphise. But they wheeled, dolphins, their liquid backs, their arched fins, moving steadily out from the shore towards the hilarious ocean. You get a real sense of India in this poem, don't you? The smells, the ginger jumped out at me, the reference to the drying ginger. And the monkeys and, yeah, the piles of coloured fish. It's such a difference from our experience of sea here in Scotland. I mean, the smell of crude oil, you know, you would be horrified if you could smell crude oil in the sea as well. Years ago, I went to Cochin and spent some time there and I can picture the beautiful nets, you know, these huge, almost like boats of nets on these kind of crossed wooden sticks that they drop into the sea and pull out again. They're stunning. One of the things that I think is a real challenge about this poem for me is that that sort of second last stanza where they're saying we can only think up cold metaphors or to anthropomorphize. That's a signal. It's like, it's true. And what's dangerous for me is that we often do that in poems, you know, so this poem about dolphins is tempting me to turn them into humans and to talk about them in a human way. And that line there, those two lines reminds me that all we're doing in this poem is, is watching them and observing them, but that we have to stop there because there's not much else we know or can know about them. The verse that precedes that, that describes them skidding around the point and screeching to a standstill, is very much imposing our sort of human characteristics and our human descriptions of their activities. You get a real sort of almost slap across the wrist in the next verse for doing that and a real snap back to thinking, no, they are animals. And that idea, that use of the word incomprehension at his thoughts. So a lot of this is about, yeah, the playfulness and the joy that you can see in a dolphin, but that's where it draws a really clear line. And I think that's where poems about animals work for me is when they describe, but they don't go that step further and tell us or personify or turn them into telling us their thoughts, which I think is dangerous because at some point your reader's likely to look up and go, really? How do you know that? You know, that's that tells us more about the writer or the speaker than it does about the animal, if that makes sense. So I do love this as a description, but that even again, that description of the hilarious ocean is borderline for me because of course they don't see the ocean as hilarious presumably they just see it as as if we don't see the air as hilarious it's just the fact of our existence the other thing i really love about the poem is the description of the oil tanker as a dolphin you know this sort of gray peeling hulk of a human thing that we it's clunky that needs a foghorn to bring it in and yet there's these wonderful you know remarkable beings that are just playing with it as a joke you know as a kind of yeah showing off do you not think he's put that hilarious ocean there to do exactly what you've just described to make us go hey wait a minute the dolphins don't see it as hilarious i think it's such a standout description that for me it's there to make us acknowledge the point you just made or maybe it's the other way around maybe he wants us to be reminded that the world around us our kind of habitat is also hilarious in other ways you know it's remarkable in other ways that we just don't maybe the dolphins are able to yeah interact with their habitat in a way that we ought to be able to do with ours and we don't 
because we, we take it for granted. I don't know. Or take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, exactly. We're certainly not wheeling in the same way. You know, we're sort of trudging, I would say. And the description of the humans, where the human, the man-made thing is blistered and it's not positive really at all, is it? So it's a real contrast between what we have done with our habitat and what they are doing, currently acting on theirs. Yeah, it's really lovely, really lovely. I think that's all from us this week. That was our very first of the commissioned work that we're going to be listening to and reading and discussing over the next few weeks. We really can't wait to get our teeth into the rest of them. And don't forget, we're always delighted to hear from you. So please do share your thoughts and comments uh, with us. You can get in touch with us at info at openbookreading.com. Thank you again for having us in your ears this week. And we look forward to being with you again soon. 